Hey everyone, Dr. Pat and I would personally like to invite you to join us in our Grow My Baby program. This is week-by-week pregnancy and birth information developed from our experience of helping more than 4,000 women grow and birth their babies. All our links are on our website, growmybaby.com.au. The information in this podcast is provided for education and research information only. It is not a substitute for professional health advice. If you're trying to get pregnant or you are pregnant and you feel a little bit overwhelmed by all you need to know, then this is the right podcast for you. Welcome to the show. I'm Bridget Maloney. And I'm obstetrician Dr. Patrick Maloney. And this is The Kick, your expert-led podcast that delivers the essentials of growing a baby. Make sure you head to our website, growmybaby.com.au, to get some awesome free tools like our Pregnancy Knowledge Checker to help you feel like you got this. Welcome everyone, I'm Bridget Maloney. And I'm obstetrician Dr. Patrick Maloney. Our guest today is Dr. Ralia Liu. Now she is a CREI fertility specialist and gynaecologist. Now some of you may not know what a CREI is. Um, Now this represents the highest level of training in IVF and it's held by fewer than 2% of Australian obstetrician and gynaecologists. Ralia is also the founder of Women's Health Melbourne and a clinical director of Life Fertility Clinic in Melbourne and Brisbane. She's also the leading researcher in elective egg freezing. She's a fellow podcaster and has a podcast called Knocked Up, the podcast about fertility and women's health. Welcome, Ralia. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's fantastic to have you. We're very excited because we get tons of uh, people who listen to The Kick who have all these questions about IVF and reproductive stuff. And whilst I do my fair share of the process up to and up to as far as IVF I, what goes on after that's uh, outside my area of expertise um, and in growing numbers of IVF pregnancies I think it's um, really time that we had something on our kick so we can actually share the news we've already said in your bio that you have a podcast called knocked up and so what we're doing is giving a an overview of um, IVF pregnancies but really you know if, if you are somebody that has an IVF pregnancy we really encourage you to go over and see what Raleigh has got on her podcast. So, Ralia, what we do often is we play speak pipe um, questions that our listeners have sent us, and, and this one's this one's really for you. Hi, guys. Uh, my name's Ali. I love your podcast, so thank you so much for all the amazing information you guys put out there. I've been listening for quite a while. I'm currently at the end of my first trimester of uh, my IVF pregnancy, and my question is to do with IVF and induction. I'm just wondering why IVF babies are usually induced, but also why it varies so much. I've, I've done a bit of research in community groups and stuff like that, and it sounds all over the place uh, in terms of when you're induced and different hospitals saying that it's not necessary, other hospitals saying it definitely is. I guess it, it makes me feel a little uneasy hearing that it, it's so different in different places. Um and obviously, I want to do what's best for me and my baby, of course. So I guess um, if you guys could shed some light on on the reasons why you're induced with IVF and why it varies so much. Thank you. Look, what I would say is that every pregnancy is unique. And I don't think it's true, actually, that all IVF pregnancies 
are induced or that there's intervention necessarily in the process of labour and birth for all IVF pregnancies. So I think that's probably the source of the confusion. Uh, Once my patients are pregnant, if they're healthy and well and they don't have any other risk factors that are likely to cause concern in their pregnancy, then they should just be treated like any other pregnant person based on their circumstances and the way that their pregnancy develops through antenatal care. There are so many reasons that people may need assisted reproduction and certain groups of patients that we treat within the IVF population are actually due to certain factors at increased risk of obstetric concerns. And amongst that high-risk population, it's likely that obstetricians will be more conservative with, with the obstetric management for those particular reasons pertinent to those individual patients. Yeah. There are many patients who have IVF for very valid concerns that may not have any increased risk in pregnancy. For example, a good 30% of the patients that I treat have isolated male factor infertility and they need IVF because we can overcome sperm problems by injecting a single sperm into an egg. And in many of those cases, people carrying the pregnancy actually have no underlying risk factors whatsoever and their pregnancies would be expected to be just as normal as a naturally conceived pregnancy might be. And the same presumably for single people, uh, same-sex female couples, all sorts of reasons why you might actually be quite a low-risk obstetric uh, patient. Definitely. And the opposite is also true that we have certain subgroups of patients that are at high risk of obstetric concerns by virtue of the fact that they might be of a more advanced age at the time of pregnancy, or they might have other comorbid factors. We call factors that contribute to medical concerns comorbidities. It's a medical word. It sounds actually terrible. It does, isn't it? But, you know, we know what you mean. (laughs) Yeah, it just means that they've got multiple risk factors that together make things more likely to to be high risk. And and so we would react accordingly. Um, I always say I'm a retired obstetrician, I'm in cheek, <laughs> because it's been more than a decade since I practiced obstetrics uh, because in my practice, which is a reproductive medicine subspecialty practice, I always tell my patients I make far too many babies to possibly also attend birth and deliver them (laughs) Um, or I would never see my own babies. Mm, But, um, you know, I would say that a very good proportion of the patients I treat that I see coming back to my practice to help them have another baby have had a normal birth without intervention. Fantastic. Is it in your knowledge at all, um, either Pat or Ralia, that um, what some of our listeners have told us is that they've gone to a a public unit um, and because they've got an IVF pregnancy, they've actually been classed differently and haven't been able to have the care model that they really wanted, like whether they wanted um, midwifery care or um, they seem to be put into a high-risk care. I wonder whether that's still true once you um, control 
control for all of those other things. Like if the woman's 43, then she's going to be too old for the midwifery care program at the local hospital. And that they'll just have a cutoff Mm. of maternal age, like it or not. And perhaps the reason why she wasn't in the midwifery program was more to do with that than than the than the fact that the pregnancy was IVF. Mm. But ho- I mean, hopefully, I, I hope um, that if IVF's the only issue, that that's probably not true. Mm. There's also talk that um, people have been told that one of the reasons why they're recommended induction at say 39 weeks um, is because of a deteriorating placenta. Yeah. What do you think about that, Riley? Are the placentas no good? Probably true that at late term, a lot of placentas are running out of kind of their their time. But I would not say that was more or less likely in an IVF-conceived pregnancy. So if somebody um, feels that their hospital has sort of said, look, it's an IVF pregnancy, we recommend an induction at 39 weeks, what are some of the tools that that person can um, help them understand that directive or decision or what are some of the questions that they might like to ask their providers? I would say that it's probably quite unlikely that as an obstetrician, a doctor would ask a patient to be induced purely because they've had IVF. So I think if that's the impression that the patient has had from the consultation, perhaps it would be of value to go and have a further conversation with their caregiving team and if they have any concerns to raise them and to have an open discussion and really I would say that an acceptable end point for a discussion of how any woman is cared for in in pregnancy whether that be related to birth or antenatal care an acceptable endpoint is that the person leaves the consultation fully understanding the interaction, the reasons behind it, and any advice that's given. And of course, I think that we can say that most clinicians, I'd say almost every single clinician I've ever met, will always have their patient's best interests at heart in recommending any course of clinical action. Mm-hmm. And perhaps if communication hasn't been clear, you know, I would say that clinicians would value the opportunity to clarify any concerns. So patients should definitely reach out and, and ask questions until they're satisfied that they understand the rationale and reason behind shared clinical decision making. We also get some interesting questions from people about early pregnancy management in um, IVF pregnancies, in particular, you know, aneuploidy screening, Down, Down syndrome screening. And sometimes people um, are not entirely clear on the role of embryo biopsy and then why, if they've had an embryo biopsy, would they then need a harmony test at 10 weeks or do they not need a harmony test at 10 weeks and sometimes not even sure whether they've had an embryo biopsy or not. Can you talk us through that? Sure. Embryo biopsy or taking cells from the outer layer of the embryo to test for their genetic makeup is not part of standard IVF practice. It would be considered an additional therapy. It would only be performed with informed consent and with an a priori discussion with your clinician. And many IVF units 
may not offer this technology. So if you think you are unsure as to whether you've had PGT or not, chances are the answer is you haven't. If you don't know, yeah, yeah, yeah. In terms of PGT, preconception genetic testing of embryos, there's different types of genetic testing. So we call it PGTA for aneuploidy screening, PGTM for monogenic conditions, or PGTSR for structural rearrangement. So that's when one of the parents has a chromosome rearrangement or karyotype abnormality. For both PGTM monogenic testing and PGTSR, we're looking for a problem that is inherited from sperm or egg that we know is in the family and we're trying to ensure that pregnancies are not affected by that specific issue. Whereas PGTA aneuploidy screening is actually looking for the chromosome makeup at a much kind of broader level and looking for random errors that can sometimes happen sporadically in an embryo itself that isn't inherited from a parent. And Down syndrome is an example that people might have heard of where a baby can have a problem but it didn't come from the mum or the dad. It happened because when the egg and sperm got together, there was an extra copy of a chromosome in this situation, chromosome 21. So it's a random event in the embryo. So who might have testing for of the embryo for aneuploidy and who might just wait and have a 10-week harmony test like everybody else? Most people having IBS, the majority would not have aneuploidy testing. It's a complex conversation. I always say to my patient, the embryo is what it is and the test is not a therapy. So the test doesn't change the embryo or make it better or make it less likely to make a baby when we replace it in the womb. So when we genetically test embryos in an IVF cycle, we cannot improve the live birth rate for the person having the IVF treatment compared to if we transferred one embryo at a time. We don't get more babies from a given cycle from doing the test. It's a selection tool. What we can do is try and identify embryos that are more likely to be successful compared to other embryos that might have chromosome error. If you're having IVF and you're relatively young, we know that for most people, most embryos are okay at the chromosome level and their risk of having lots of abnormal embryos is actually quite low. We make abnormal embryos at every age. You can have a baby with a problem when you're very young and when you're very healthy and when your egg quality is very good. These errors are random and sporadic. But as women age, remembering that we make all our eggs when we are in fact a fetus ourselves in utero, the eggs that we make have to last our lifetime. And some eggs are ovulated 20, 30 years after our fertile peak and they're tired and they suffer metabolic fatigue. And just like when we're tired, we're more likely to make an error. When eggs are tired, they're more likely to make an error. So as people get older, particularly, more egg-related DNA mistakes happen in embryos. And some people 
are trying so hard to get pregnant and they suffer failure after failure putting an embryo back. And sometimes we feel that to lift a burden on those patients of failed treatments or miscarriages related to chromosome error, we can spend some time finding an embryo that's DNA normal so that it has a better chance of success. And that's where PDTA can help prevent some of the problems that people unfortunately experience in IVF as we get older. One of our listeners, Ralia, says that she was told that genes can get can change after implantation. Is that is that true? Genes can change as cell divisions happen. Yeah. So we've got to remember that an embryo is a dynamic entity. It starts off as a single cell. And that single cell is formed from the union of sperm and egg. But then what happens is exponential cell division. So that one cell goes to two cells, which go to four, to eight, to 16, to 32, etc. And on and on for millions of cell divisions. These cells are what we call embryonic stem cells. And they are what we call pluripotent, which means they can become every tissue in the body. They're quite amazing. But each cell division is, in fact, an opportunity for error. Because whenever a cell division happens, we have to copy our DNA and we have to split half of what the two copies are into two different cells. Mm. So DNA mistakes are not just from the original formation of sperm and egg. They can happen later. And that brings us to the topic of some embryos being what we call mosaic or having some normal cells and some abnormal cells. And some babies are mosaic, some adults are mosaic, and some placentas are mosaic. So, you know, genetics is amazing. It's not simple. Mm. And, you know, what can go wrong will go wrong to some degree at some point in time. And we're still really learning some of the mysteries. But yes, genetic mistakes can happen at any stage of development. Yeah. And is that is that why you might have some routine um, aneuploidy testing once you're already pregnant, even if you'd had an embryo biopsy? So when we biopsy an embryo, it's got about 200 cells and it's called a blastocyst. And the cells that we take are from its outer layer, which is called the trophectoderm, and it's representative of what will become the future placenta. But we can only take so many cells without harming the embryo and reducing its potential to make a baby. So when we test an embryo, we're really only taking about five or seven cells maximum. And we're choosing a random area of the embryo to biopsy. We know if those cells are normal, as best we can ascertain that the embryo is highly likely to be normal, but it's not 100% certain. And we don't know for sure that if we biopsy an embryo at 3 o'clock versus at 6 o'clock that we're going to get the same result. Yeah. So we make some inferences to the best of our ability that an embryo is normal. But some of the greatest criticisms of genetic testing of embryos come from this fact because the inner cell mass that's going to make the baby, the inner part of the blastocyst, is not tested And it's possible in some embryos that the inner cell mass can be either normal or abnormal and the outer layer tested may not be exactly the same. And one of the concerns about genetic testing for aneuploidy and why we don't 
ever think it will be used uniformly is that we worry that we may, in our quest to avoid abnormal embryos being transferred, potentially be at risk of discarding some babies with the bathwater, that some normal embryos with an abnormal funny patch in the outer layer that might make normal babies if they went back are not being given the opportunity because a blip has arisen on the genetic testing. I think just we need to summarise this bit because, like, if I was somebody having to choose all these things, um, listening to that, I'd think, I still don't know what I'd do. You know, it's for you guys, I'm sure you're like, oh, yeah, we're having a great conversation here. (laughs) But I'm like, okay, so if I have um, pre-genetic screening and both myself and Pat, we have perfect genes, we make the embryo through IVF and then we wouldn't have any real testing until the 10-week NIPTS. That's what you're suggesting? That is what most people do in IVF treatment. And just like any other pregnancy... We offer every opportunity for screening in the pregnancy and that will give the most accurate result because when you do non-invasive prenatal testing in the first trimester, you're actually measuring free fetal DNA in the mother's blood and it's being shared from the developing placenta and so you actually have a lot more DNA to test than a tiny little microscopic embryo biopsy can give you. The result of that test is still a screening test, but it's highly sensitive. It's also important to remember that we're also with embryo testing for the monogenic conditions, like if someone's at risk of having a baby with, say, spinal muscular atrophy or another genetic condition, we're looking for different information. We're not just looking for do they have every volume of the DNA encyclopedia, yes or no, we're looking for a spelling mistake in a single word on a single page that we'd never pick up on a test like NIPT. Mm. And of course, that's a very different situation because when we're looking to exclude a disease in a baby, it's a very powerful thing. And that example of SMA is a good one. Spinal muscular atrophy is carried by about one in a hundred of us as parents. If two parents come together who both carry that particular gene mutation, one in four children will be affected and they will not survive Mm. into adulthood and usually can be different case to case, but usually babies are born normal and decline and don't survive beyond the first couple of years of life. That's devastating for a family and that's a really good reason to do IVF and pick embryos that don't have that risk because going through a pregnancy and testing at the end of the first trimester and then potentially being in a situation where you might choose to terminate a pregnancy is a very traumatic possibility for families. This might come into another podcast, but how many people um, come to IVF because of a known genetic issue and how many are just coming because of infertility? The majority of patients that I treat, it's because they've tried to get pregnant and have not been able to. But I, in my practice, see quite a lot of patients with genetic reasons. And one of the reasons I think also that patients come to me for that particular problem is I've done research and a PhD in that area of medicine. 
I probably see more people yeah, in that skewed. situation than mm. a lot of practitioners do for that reason. But I would say still even in my practice, the vast majority of people who are having IVF, it's because of male factor infertility, unexplained infertility, endometriosis-related infertility, tubal factor infertility, advanced age-related infertility. That would be the majority of my patients. Another question we get a lot, Pat, that you wanted to bring up was about dating an IVF pregnancy. Oh, yeah, people yeah. ask this all the time. How do you date an IVF pregnancy? Because people say, oh, they dated it off my, you know, maybe I, maybe a, a period or a pill period I had before the IVF cycle. I thought, well, that's a bit strange. Then what about they dated it off the date of the transfer or they dated it off a, a six-week ultrasound that showed a fetal heart? What, what, what's your usual practice? We dated off the embryo transfer and the reason for that is that it can take a variable amount of time to get to the point of embryo transfer in different cycle types, but it's when the embryo goes back that we do an adjustment and we calculate the due date. I guess it's worth remembering that in a natural pregnancy, we tend to estimate the due date in someone with regular cycles from the missed period because in ancient times that was what we could remember as the central event before That's a pregnancy yeah. happening, exactly, the yardstick. But in IVF we can be more precise because we know exactly when we put the embryo back and 10 days later we do a pregnancy test for the first time in the scenario of transferring a blastocyst embryo, which we usually transfer on day five or six after progesterone has started to open the receptivity window for the womb. So we calculate based on that, but we adjust so that the dating, the estimated due date would be of the same rationale, the adjusted rationale um, of somebody who'd been dating from a period. Excellent. So what would that be? like? If What's my... the actual adjustment? Yeah, yeah. Adjustment? yeah. Like what would someone so say their date of transfer was? pregnant, you know, is considered 10 days after a blastocyst transfer. Okay, and so the um, patient leaves your clinic knowing that and that becomes their known estimated um, due date from that date of transfer and that's common knowledge, yeah. And it's very helpful in assessing progress in the first trimester but just like a natural conception, not every baby develops at exactly the same rate. So just like a natural pregnancy, when you measure the baby on an ultrasound, there'll be plus or minus as a range. We don't change the dates. We know when mm. we put the embryo back. Yep. It's just that not every baby is exactly the same size at exactly the same gestation. There's a range. You, that settles that one. Yes, you you like the six week or the early ultrasound as a dating scan, though, don't you? Uh, well, well yeah. no, but people want to see the heartbeat, so we do that anyway. In fact, the IVF services will usually do that, and then we see the patient after, after. that's been established that it that it's worked as at least as far as that first ultrasound. You're listening to the Kick with Dr. Pat and Bridget. How many times have you Googled something about your pregnancy? When I was pregnant all the time, Dr. Pat. <laughs> we get it. You may be confused or overwhelmed. It's normal to want information, but where's the reliable stuff from experts? Yeah. Now, if you like our podcast, 
Dr. Pat and I have developed an online program to help guide you through whatever stage of pregnancy you're at. It's taken us literally two years to put it together. Two long, hard years, wasn't it? (laughs) But, you know, it is a game changer in how pregnancy information is given. Now, how it works is uh, you get to sign up at whatever stage of pregnancy you're at. Like, So you could be pre-pregnant in your very early stages of pregnancy, late pregnancy, preparing for birth, or maybe you've just brought your baby home. And you get lots of information around that. And then you also get to join our closed Facebook group. We've called in all our contacts too. So we've got a dietitian, an anaesthetist, physiotherapist. Sonographer. Yeah, who else? A pediatric nurse, obstetrician, mother of four. Oh, just all the people you need to hear from. So if that's you... Come and join us at www.growmybaby.com.au. So the original speak pipe person actually gave us another speak pipe, which said that a month later she'd been diagnosed with preeclampsia. So she wanted to know, and I think it's a it's a common question, are there any more risk factors for an IVF pregnancy? Are they more prone to things such as preeclampsia? This woman was 27 and, and normal body weight. Um, and so, you know, I think if we could just cover off whether, in your experience, IVF pregnancies are high risk because of. There's been some really good research recently on the way that we transfer embryos and how that can impact on a person's chance of developing preeclampsia and other obstetric concerns like intrauterine growth restriction, which is another issue that can be related to placentation pathology, so problems with forming a good placenta and a blood flow between mother and child. And what we have found is that some psychotypes are more risky than others. Certainly, there is an increased risk of preeclampsia in what's called an artificially supported embryo transfer cycle, where we use hormones to replace the hormones of the body and prepare the womb for implantation. This method has very high pregnancy rates, but it is associated with an increased risk of preeclampsia. And the reason that we believe that to be the case is that having a corpus luteum or a follicle that has released an egg and become a hormone-making factory on the ovary to support the first trimester is very important. And the corpus luteum is responsible for progesterone production until the placenta takes over but it also makes a whole myriad of vasoactive peptides that help us form a good blood supply between the mother and the child. And we do believe that that corpus luteum is the difference between having an embryo transfer in a natural cycle with a lower risk of preeclampsia and an artificial cycle with a higher risk of preeclampsia. Having said that, before... I engender any concern in anyone who's had an artificial cycle (laughs) and they are very commonly used and they're used in every country of the world. I would say in the USA, for example, probably 99% of cycles are artificially supported. It's a cultural difference with the way we practice here in Australia. It's a relative risk increase and the absolute risk is not so high. So what that means is that, yes, we've noticed a difference, It's a real difference, 
but most people who have an artificially supported cycle are just fine and do not have preeclampsia. So that, that is something that we have noticed and is supported by research. We also know that people who have IVF have it for a reason and those reasons that bring them to treatment may increase their risk of certain conditions in pregnancy, including preeclampsia. So, for example, it is much more common in older mums to have hypertension or essential hypertension compared to younger mums. No rule will be 100%. You can be young with essential hypertension and you can be, you know, having a baby in your 40s and be perfectly healthy with no concerns. Mm. But as a trend, we see those problems more commonly as we try to have babies later in life. And those problems themselves are associated with an increased risk of preeclampsia. So some of it is probably more of a causative association and some of it is probably more of a confounding association. Yeah. And our listeners are very, very smart. They'll know exactly what the difference is. No, they, I think they we will. talk about confounders a lot. We do, yeah. and and we we talk about the difference between relative and absolute risk as yeah. well. Good, so fantastic. Ralia, is that also the case for things such as prematurity and gestational diabetes? Certainly, some patients in the IVF population are high risk patients for various reasons, and some of those conditions are more common for the for the reason that the patient population, as a general statement is at higher risk compared to those who spontaneously conceive without assistance. And does that flow on to how babies are born? Like, is there a greater increase of um, cesarean or um, is it just the same as the usual population? I would say anecdotally that there is probably an increased demand for elective cesarean in the IVF population. And I think it's about maternal appetite for risk yeah i think a lot of the time when somebody has tried really really hard to get pregnant over many years Mm. nobody wants to have ivf most people who come to ivf do so with a long history of having tried other things and often with a history of traumatic events such as miscarriage in their past when they have the opportunity to ask for an elective caesarean, I think some do so in response to that because there is some degree of risk that we accept when we birth a baby naturally. Labor is obviously a natural process and most normal babies can cope with that very, very well. But every time you have a contraction, the blood flow to the placenta stops temporarily and that potentially can cause some babies to become distressed. And many, many mothers, I believe, who particularly are having babies later in life are not going to have many babies and are really worried about things that can go wrong in labour may choose to have an elective caesarean. And I actually support their choice if that is their choice. I also support the choice of other mothers who choose to attempt a natural birth um, or choose other pathways. I think the most important thing we can do as clinicians is support people's birth choices and I try not to stigmatise anybody's choice. Mm. Fantastic. I agree with you there. I I think that uh, 
people who've had a really long and difficult road, I don't th- I don't think those people those those couples think that their risk of some sort of obstetric mishap is any higher than everybody else. What people say to me as an obstetrician is, I'm just over, I'm over risk. I'm over thinking about it. I'm over discussing it. Mm. And, you know, and there's something about a planned section in, in some people's minds that is the, is the, um, is the quick and more direct route to a, a healthy baby to take home. Mm. And some people don't think that at all and, no, and some, say I, the opposite. Yeah, yeah, some are there going, well, I I couldn't couldn't conceive naturally. I'm going to have a vaginal birth. Absolutely. I've got to have something in my um, uh, birthing repertoire that says, yes, I, I did. I, I went through that process and I birthed my baby. It, that's the thing. You've just got to um, know what people's choice is and support it how best you can. I think I've... Asked all my questions, Pat. Have you got more questions about IVF pregnancy? Yeah, but they're for the, they're for next time. We've, yes, we've got tons more questions for Alia. Yeah, we're going to have a little one hundred and one IVF um, next. So, um, everybody, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Ralia, for giving up your time and sharing with us uh, all your wisdom. All right, everyone, uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Brilliant.